Hello, and welcome to the On the Economy podcast with myself, Jared Bernstein, and you, Ben Spielberg. And today we're going to talk about anti-poverty programs that really work, not just today, but have lasting benefits into the future. This is one of my favorite topics, but before we get into that, Jared, I feel like we owe our listeners a little bit of detail about your recent trip to China or Mm. some of your musings from that trip. Yeah, I was in China for two and a half weeks traveling around to five or six different places. China is very crowded. That's well known. There's well over a billion people there, and getting on a train or something like that can be kind of a pushy experience. But I found it to be an amazing place to visit, in no small part because it is so non-homogeneous, so unique. I do a fair bit of traveling, mostly here in the U.S. and in Europe, and every place is kind of starting to meld into each other. Not so in China. I mean, for one thing, you know what they do in China is they speak Chinese. (laughs) Do you speak any Chinese? I mean, a few words, and every time I said anything, they kind of laughed. I thought I kind of learned how to say the word half, which is unbuy. So I would have my cup of coffee, and then I'd get my refill, and I'd want to say unbuy. And I always got very curious looks, and my guide eventually told me that, well, I thought I was asking for half a cup of coffee. I was actually asking for a handbag. Interesting. Were there any policy insights you gleaned while you were there? Was it really reprieve from what's going on here? Thankfully, there weren't many policy insights. But in fact, there was one conspicuous one, which is in the cities in particular, they basically set their unemployment rate, as far as I could tell, by creating a lot of jobs. Government does a lot of job creation. And you and I have talked about that in our own context as a way to reach folks who've been left behind, even at relatively low unemployment rates. And that is something they do there. I will say those jobs tend to be very low level. So, for example, there are a lot of street sweepers in the cities, Hmm. and that may not be a great job. I will say they are incredibly clean streets. You don't see litter very much in those areas. Switching back to the U.S. context, you did write on your blog before you left that you were hoping we wouldn't let things get too screwed up while you were away. And I'm happy to report that they are not yet too screwed up. Yeah, but they're just as screwed up as they were. They haven't improved a ton, and there are still a lot of Republican efforts to undermine many programs that we care a lot about, and that's part of the motivation for this episode. I think our listeners are probably, hopefully, aware of the Republican effort to repeal and quote-unquote replace the Affordable Care Act with something worse, but... There's also been a House Republican budget that's come out of the fray, and that takes a lot of shots at other safety net programs that we're going to be talking about. As I was away, I would occasionally pick up on news from the U.S., and sometimes you get that kind of a distance, and you just think, boy, we are really going nuts here because the changes that are being proposed go in exactly the opposite direction of helping the people that helped Trump to get where he is today. So it's no news flash to point out there are hypocrites at work here, but I do think we need to drill down on that. Yes, and I think one of the reasons that this episode is very timely is because one of the ways that Republicans often sell these big proposed cuts they have to programs for low-income people, things like Medicaid, like SNAP, the program formerly called Food Stamps, is that they are actually helping poor people by making these cuts. They often sell it as we're actually helping people in the long run by taking these programs away because we're going to increase their work effort. And fortunately, we're going to have some colleagues on today to talk about how that's really just completely false. These programs help people in the long run, and taking them away really harms people in the long run as well. 
Well, the sooner we get to those guests, the better then. But first, we need some music, right? Absolutely. So you're probably familiar with Motown music, you know, uh, Smokey Robinson and Marvin Gaye and Supremes and all that. This is one of the first times when you've introduced some music I can say, yes, I am actually familiar. I mean, I grew up with that stuff, and I fiddle around on the bass a bit. And the bass player for a lot of these Motown hits was a guy named James Jamerson, who was just a trailblazer when it came to just the funky electric bass. And there's a song by Smokey Robinson that I've been listening to. Everybody knows this song. Second That Emotion. And I found this cut on YouTube where this person takes the bass part and plays it along with the cut. And I thought this was just a brilliant kind of expose of the contributions made by James Jamerson. So let's listen to the funky bass line in Second That Emotion from Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. Maybe you want to give me kisses sweet. Okay, welcome back, and I hope everybody thoroughly enjoyed that extremely funky bass play. Ben, tell us who our illustrious guests are. So we are really fortunate to have two of our awesome colleagues here today who just wrote a paper on some of these topics that we've been talking about in terms of the short-term and long-term effectiveness of safety net programs. We have Arlock Sherman, who's a senior fellow here at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, and Tazra Mitchell, who's a policy analyst. Both of them are on our family income support team Tezra and Arlock, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey guys, thank you. Start out by telling us a little bit about just the basic poverty reduction dynamics that you describe in the paper. The safety net, by which we mean programs like food assistance, now called SNAP, Social Security, unemployment insurance, all those government supports, they cut poverty in half, it turns out, from what it would be without those. If you look at poverty rates before the safety net is counted, It's 26% of people who were below the government's poverty line. So before the safety net kicks in, a little bit more than a quarter of Americans are poor. That's right. And then after you count all of those income supports, those economic security programs, that falls to 14% of the population. Now, the percentages that you're just describing, they count the value of food assistance, of housing, which I think the official measure doesn't always do, right? Exactly right. So this is a newer measure. They call it the supplemental poverty measure. If you go back to the late 60s, the poverty rate has fallen substantially, but only when you count the safety net. If you didn't count the kinds of programs we're going to be talking about, there would be essentially no long-term progress against poverty since the late 60s. Boy, I I hear lots of Republicans say there has been no long-term progress. That's completely 
incorrect, as Arlac was just mentioning. In 2015, these programs lifted more than 38 million Americans out of poverty, including 8 million children. These programs, what they do is they allow families to afford the basics, put food on the table, keep a roof over their children's heads, perhaps buy very basic supplies for their children so that they can better succeed in school. So just one quick piece of context, what are we talking about in terms of annual income when we're talking about the federal poverty line? So for a family of four, it's about $24,000 a year. It's a very stingy budget. That's not really measuring what families need to make ends meet, but just what the bare minimum is. Just to barely get by. Right. right. So let's now dive into really what I think is the most exciting part of this paper, which comes off of what you just said, because I'm an old enough participant in this debate that when I started, it was all about consumption, basically helping people meet their basic needs today. And that's kind of what we've been talking about so far. But your paper gets into some lasting impacts. So Arlock, give us a thumbnail sketch of what that's about. What people are starting to realize is that every little bit of economic support for a low-income family helps the children do a little better in reading their math tests. They are more likely to be healthy. You can go back to the very first years of life and see children are more likely to be born at healthier birth weights. And you can fast forward up to high school completion rates going up when children have access to this kind of help. They're more likely to enter college and continue through college. So if you feed or house a kid today, there are positive implications for that kid later. Is that kind of where you're coming down here? That's it. Not just for the kids, for society as a whole, right? Say more about that. When everyone does better, everyone does better. These children go on to be more productive, they earn more, they're less likely Mm -hmm. to have a family that lives in poverty during their adulthood. So some of these programs can really help put kids on a path that breaks the cycle of poverty. You know, you're reminding me about some important research that I know you and I are like, I've talked about that shows that if you spend something like $1 on quality preschool education that pays back $7 later in life. I'm not saying that the cost-benefit is exactly that for what you're describing, but that's the kind of dynamic you're talking about. Although in this case, again, we're talking about direct income support, and that leads me to one question I wanted to ask you based on your paper, because you dig into some of the research around these programs and what it seems actually does make the difference. And I thought one really interesting finding is the juxtaposition of employment effects for the families involved and income effects. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. So important gains for children have been found in programs that boost employment and also boost income. But whenever you look at programs that only boost employment but not incomes, you don't see as many of the positive effects on children as in programs that definitely boost income. Now, I find that a little bit confusing because it would seem to me that if you're working, you're bringing home more income. Why didn't that connection get made there? So a lot of Families want work, and I think most of us agree it's better if families have the opportunity to work. But what has been tested once or twice is what happens if you push families to work when there's not a good job mm-hmm. for them and they lose the income support that they were getting Wait, from the a back, cash assistance In program. the background here, I, want, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I want you to keep going. But in the background here, I want our listeners to think about work requirements. That's a conservative play that's in the background here. But and, keep going. And it's a terrible idea. Arlock will well, Arlock is sort of giving some of the substance as to why that's the case. But go ahead. So what we can do to tease apart 
the effects of employment and income is look back at some experiments that were done in the 1990s when they looked at the effect of providing earnings supplements to help struggling working families get by. And then in an additional step in the experiment, in a separate prong of the experiment, if you will, they added work requirements. Mm -hmm. And what those work requirements did is say, if you're not working, then we'll take away some of your assistance, some of your income. And that meant that in that part of the experiment, families ended up working more. Yet, because they had these penalties at times when they weren't able to work, on average, income didn't go up. So, end of the day, basically, if you're working more and it's really not showing up significantly in your income, then you might not get the kinds of long-term effects the two of you are documenting. So, let me ask you about that. I want to break this down really concretely. So there's a poor family, let's say a single mom with a couple of kids. When I go up to her and I say, here's $3,000, and according to the research you're documenting, somehow, 15 years later, her kid is doing better in school, maybe has better health outcomes, college entry, etc. What explains that? How does that work? Explain the mechanism by which more income leads to better long-term outcomes. So researchers are still exploring why income matters for children's ability to thrive long-term, but we have been able to find three potential mechanisms by which income improves children's outcomes. And every child's needs are different, so each reason may differ depending on the child. But we think it's related to nutrition, stress, and parents' ability to buy the things that improve their children's educational outcomes. Nutrition? stress and the ability to invest in your kids' well-being. So you're talking to a couple of us sitting here at the table who have kids and invest in them deeply. So on number three, I know exactly what you're talking about, but go ahead. So one way that added income may help is, for example, by reducing severe poverty-related stress, a condition that scientists have linked to lasting consequences for kids' brain development and physical health. Another may be by helping families afford better learning environments from child care through college. And we see improved parent-child relationships in some of these programs after there's an infusion of cash. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that this always makes me think of, I don't think it's always as apparent to us as it could be, and this is why we need more research, all the different ways in which having a little bit more money really does help the people who have it. I mean, I'm thinking of things like the social networks that people are able to form because they have more access to money. You talk about stress, and I think in the paper you talk about kind of sustained stress for people who don't have money. But I just think about any given task that somebody has to do, if it's not in the back of your mind that you need to be thinking about where's my next meal going to come from, what am I going to do to pay the rent this month, it seems to me like all of those things might factor in. I mean, is that part of the reason that it's kind of hard to get the research on this, that there are just so many little things all the time that may have an impact? I think that's right. If your child is unable to see the blackboard and you need to buy glasses, or if you're worrying about lead poisoning in your home and think you should go get a test done or something, but you really can't afford it, there are these endless impossible choices that poor families grapple with all the time. And one term psychologists are starting to use for this is we all have limited bandwidth. 
And when you're juggling this seemingly endless list of impossible choices, that leaves that much less patience and energy for nurturing your child. So I have one other question. Uh, Jared gave the scenario of we give $3,000 to a family and then 15 years later we see the effects. I suspect that we don't have extremely clear research on this, but is there a linear effect here? Like if I were to give $6,000, do I see double the effects? Is there some activation where I'm above a threshold and all of a sudden there's a big explosion in effects? I'm just kind of curious what we know about how much is enough or how much more is needed. Above about $25,000 annual family income, the importance of income begins to diminish, Mm -hmm. it seems. So the $3,000 you mentioned, one study found that with an extra $3,000, you'd be likely to grow up to be working more when you're a young adult and your own earnings when you grow up might be another 17% Mm -hmm. higher. But above $25,000, it's much dicier whether income matters as much. I think one thing that suggests is that it behooves us if we care about giving children a fair start in life to really think about the families who are below that amount. Now here's another really neat finding from your study. You just said something about giving children a better start at the beginning of life, and obviously I'm completely with you. But you also report on something that's probably less well understood by even lots of people who dive around in these weeds, and that's that, in fact, if you help families when kids are in adolescence, that also can make a really big difference. Can you tell us about that finding? Yeah, so income is important for children across all ages. So studies have found that income really matters for children, especially under age six, but there are other studies that find that income is very important for certain outcomes for teenagers as well. More research is maybe needed to figure out what programs are needed per age group, but we do know that income is very important for children. So I I have a 17 and a 15 year old home and I lavish tremendous amounts of income on them. Are you telling me that that's good parenting? Yes, it's good parenting. (laughs) One of the NIT experiments showed that income especially mattered for adolescents' ability to complete high school. Well, they're definitely going to have to complete high school. (laughs) So these are the negative income tax experiments that took place at different parts of the country from the late 60s to the early 80s. And they didn't think a lot about kids, as far as I can tell, when they designed these experiments. But a few of the sites looked at different child outcomes and found that there was higher nutritional intake in some of the sites for the children who got the assistance compared to those who were randomly assigned not to get that help. There were better grades, there were better high school completion, as Tezra said, and more enrollment around age 18, which suggests probably continuing on to college, most likely. So the negative income tax gives people cash directly. One of the other programs you look at in your paper is SNAP, formerly Food Stamps, How should I think about the comparison between something that provides somebody just directly with cash or something that provides somebody with food stamps, for example? I think that you should look at these programs in a similar way. What we saw from a study that looked at the early introduction of SNAP when it was called food stamps in the 60s and 70s is that children who had access to SNAP early on, they saw improved health outcomes, but they also saw improved 
school completion rates, and we see some of these same findings in cash assistance programs. It's a lot like income support because what it does is it frees up money in the family budget. You have to take less of your earnings to go towards food, so it frees up other parts of the budget. So they don't have to make these really horrible trade-off decisions about whether to put food on the table or to put gas in the car so that they can go to work and keep their job. Now, I sometimes make it my job around here to be a little more annoying than Ben Mm -hmm. is by probing you with the conservative opposition sorts of questions. So there's a school of thought that says, okay, even if you're right about some of these benefits, there are costs to achieving them as well, critics often claim. If you give people money, for example, you'll dampen their work incentive. What is your take on that critique? If you look at the research, a lot of economists would agree with the principle that there are some trade-offs, and they would say, in practice, those trade-offs are very small. If you look at how much people would be earning their own way out of poverty if you took away the safety net that's here, maybe the earnings-based poverty rate, when you don't count the government assistance, maybe that would go down by a percentage point or so. But really, these are not the big effects that people worry about. I tend to think of a study, Jared, that you cited recently that was brought to your attention by a libertarian, Sam Hammond, about Canada's universal child benefit, Mm -hmm. which is a cash grant to families, and that really showed no work impact at all. Why is that? Why do you think people don't have the traditional conservative or even economist response, or at least of the magnitudes that people often worry about. Maybe they haven't taken enough economics classes. (laughs) I hope that's true. A final question, and this is one I'm particularly excited about asking the two of you about because of how much you know about this. Putting aside current political constraints, which we know are steep, what do you think we should do based on your research to further improve the lasting impacts of our safety net? So our research in this report shows that income really matters for children's well-being. So at the very least, we need to maintain and strengthen the programs that we have. But we can still do more. For strengthening the Earned Income Tax Credit and these other programs, it's very important to make sure that those efforts are paired with a stronger minimum wage, with efforts to make sure that adults can stay on the job and know that their kids have access to child care, or that they won't lose their job because their kid gets sick. So we have to also invest in paid leave for parents. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there any reason to go back to something that Arlock said before, not to make sure that for anybody who's less than $25,000 a year or some threshold similar to that, that everybody less than that amount is brought up to that amount? There's no reason that we shouldn't be jumping in with a set of policies that guarantee economic security for families now. So in addition to raising people's wages and their ability to work through childcare, we need to look at the economic security programs that we have as not just short-term anti-poverty programs, but as long-term investments in families. So we could expand the child tax credit and the federal income tax system that currently provides $1,000 per child, but it leaves out some children at the bottom. Mm -hmm. We could make sure that all children are getting that. We could expand the amount, especially for young children. We could expand the earned income tax credit, a similar working family tax credit proposal. We could expand the level of food assistance that we provide through the SNAP program and strengthen that. And all of these things are investments not just in reducing poverty and inequality today, but they are investments in children's ability to earn more in the future. 
But really crucial here is the idea that first, you do no harm. Congress is weighing very deep cuts that are very disproportionately targeted toward exactly the kinds of families we're talking about, cutting assistance to them by billions and billions. It is not a step in the right direction. Well, that is a perfect place to stop. Thanks so much to Tazra and Arlock for taking us through your important new paper. And of course, as is our want, we will have the link to the paper on SoundCloud. Thank you guys. Thanks for having us. Well, I very much enjoyed listening to Tazra and Arlock hold forth there. I know you had some further thoughts on the work disincentive point. Yes, I did want to get back to this point about conservatives' argument that people will stop working if you give them enough money or to get work by. Less. Or work less yeah. if you give them enough money to get by. And again, that's just not borne out in the data. And I think the reason that it isn't is because in terms of economic incentives, nobody wants to live at the poverty level. People want to make more money than that as a pure economic incentive. But I think beyond that, there are other incentives. There are social incentives personal incentives, and very few people actually are the caricature that that conservative argument makes of them. And so I think it's really important not to be condescending towards people with less money and assume that the way incentives work for them is so different than the way they work for everybody yeah, else. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, I do think that the basic conservative philosophy on this is if you provide some benefits to poor people, they'll work less. If you lavish the wealthy with tax cuts, they'll work more. So somehow the way conservatives have crafted this argument about work disincentives leads them to argue for cutting spending on the poor while cutting taxes on the wealthy. (laughs) Exactly, and I just think it's a fairly offensive as well as an inaccurate concept. There's a kind of related point that gets made a lot in this context that the conversation with Harlock and Tesser reminded me of, and that's this idea where conservative budget cutters say, we have to cut the anti-poverty programs we were just talking about for our kids because otherwise we're leaving our kids with a terrible future of debt and deficits. And in fact, if you think about it in the context of the conversation and the evidence that our guests just provided, what they're really saying is we have to make kids worse off, not just today, but tomorrow as well, to make them better off tomorrow. <laughs> and it's completely illogical. The idea is that if we cut health care and housing and nutritional support, our kids will inherit less debt and they'll be better off. When instead, if we cut those things, as we've learned, not only will poor children be worse off today in all the ways that those benefits help them, but they'll be worse off tomorrow. And somehow this vague debt trade-off that never really matters anyway, because at the same time, you've got Republicans cutting the heck out of taxes, so they're not really concerned about debt and deficits. That's purely a smokescreen. But the logic of the argument completely falls apart when you take Arlock and Tazra's evidence about the benefits of these programs in the future. Yeah, I would say the biggest threat for our future children is not the debt, but it is a lack of investment and also our failure to combat climate change, which is a whole other issue. (laughs) But that's very low on the list of things we should worry about. That's very well put. The biggest threat to our kids is not future debt levels, it's present disinvestments. Jared, do you want to take us out with a oh, joke? Oh, yes. You know, every week we try to end with a joke, and we often try to do an economics one, but that gets a little hard to keep going. Although this joke does relate a little bit to economics because it has a seasonal adjustment component. <laughs> so this old Yiddish guy wants to go swimming. He goes to the swimming pool. There's a sign there that says, no swimming allowed. So he jumps in the pool. Lifeguard runs out and says, hey, old man, did you see the sign? It says, no swimming allowed. He says, oh. To you, it says no swimming allowed. To me, it says no swimming allowed. Hmm. I'm not sure I understand the seasonal adjustment component of that joke, but always it's in there a somewhere. good punctuation joke. Anyway, for this week, that's on the economy.